passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as I mentioned, this morning is the beginning of Advent. Uh, That's time of focusing on preparation for Jesus' coming. And I want to start with a question this morning. That question is this. Have you ever prayed for someone? And you've continued to pray for them for a long time, but nothing ever happened? Have you ever prayed for them for a long journey of time, for years and years, and nothing ever happened, and then you eventually just give up because of that? For me, years ago, that that was the case. I had a a good friend of mine who uh, wasn't a Christian, and God laid it on my heart to begin praying for him. And so I prayed uh, consistently every single day that he would come to know Jesus. I would fast consistently for him, pouring myself out before God and saying, God, please, would you come and wreck his life? Wake him up that he can come into a relationship with you. This went on for years. But then one day I just gave up. One day I, I just stopped praying. There wasn't really a reason why. But now as I look back on it, and as I have had time to wrestle with, why did I just stop praying for this person? God has revealed to me that it was because deep down, I thought that this was just a lost cause. That all of my prayers for years hadn't amounted to anything, and so why bother continuing to, to waste my time praying to God over this situation? And maybe you found yourself in a similar situation in your life, that you've prayed for something to happen over and over again, and there has been no answer in your life. Maybe you have been praying for reconciliation in your family, but on the holidays, they keep coming and things are just as tense, just as awkward in your family situations. Maybe you've been praying for healing for years and years, but the diagnoses keep coming and they just keep getting worse and worse. Or maybe you've been like me and you've been praying for the salvation of a friend or a family member, but you've kind of given up after years have gone by with no answer. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that addresses this issue. It's about a person who, just like me, had prayed for something for years and there had been no answer. And he had lost hope. He, be- he lost the, the belief that it was possible for something to happen. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first day of Advent. And Advent is a time of about four weeks that we celebrate before the coming of Christmas, where we focus on preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Advent, it comes from a Latin word that just means coming. And so this is a time focusing on the coming of Jesus and how Jesus is going to come to earth and prepare a way for us to come before God blamelessly. And righteous in his sight. The word Advent means coming. But I think sometimes for us, it can often mean waiting. We don't like to wait, but waiting is a part of life. And in this text today, the Jewish people were waiting. They were waiting for freedom from their oppressors, they were waiting for their hopes to be realized. Above all, they were waiting for the Messiah, for their deliverer to come. 
And in our text this morning, we're going to see that Zechariah, this man that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, he was waiting for something different. He was waiting for those things, yes, but he was also waiting for the chance of a lifetime as a priest. And maybe you're waiting this morning. You find yourself waiting for answers to prayer, for direction in your life. For some of us, it's just we're waiting for Christmas to get here, so we're out of school. Whatever the case is, this text speaks about the coming promise that God has for us as we focus our eyes on Jesus this Advent season. And what can we wait for? What we can wait for is what God has promised. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage. If not, the passage will be printed in uh, your sermon notes as well as on the screen behind me. And as we watch this story unfold, as we continue to look at Zechariah over these few verses, we're going to see one thing. This is going to remind us of one truth for us, and that is this, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And this is really good news for us in the midst of times where it doesn't seem like God is answering prayer. God will keep his promises. So please join me in reading and follow along as I read aloud Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. At the start of this passage, Luke gives us a couple verses that really place this into context. It places us uh, specifically in the context of what time this is taking place, and what is going on in the world during this time. When he says, in the days of King Herod, it tells us exactly when this is taking place. King Herod was the king, uh, or the ruler, rather, of Judea, uh, which is today modern-day Israel, from about the year 37 B.C. up to the year 4 B.C. And if you do the math, it looks like uh, this takes place near the end of his reign, around the year 8 or 7 B.C. And you might be asking, well, why is that important for us? It's important because it tells us what has been going on in Israel's history up to this point. If you look at the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is a book called Malachi. Malachi was written about 400 years before the events that Luke describes here take place. And Malachi was the last time that the people of Israel, that the people of Jerusalem had heard from God. God had been silent for 400 years. They had been waiting for God to come and speak to them through a prophet for 400 years. That's a long time. Just think of what has happened in our own society in the last 400 years. So, for example, 400 years ago, uh, the King James Bible was just written. The pilgrims hadn't even landed in the United States 400 years ago. In the past 400 years, we've seen cars, we've seen flight, we've seen computers, we've seen people go to the moon. We've seen countless, of thing, countless things happen in the last 400 years. A lot of stuff can happen in that amount of time. And for 400 years, God was silent. The people of Israel were wondering where he was, why he wasn't speaking to them. You might be saying, well, what's the big deal? God hasn't spoken to us in over 2,000 years, or about 2,000 years. But that's not true. See, when 
before, before the New Testament came and between the writing of Malachi and the coming of Jesus, they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They didn't have the Holy Spirit revealing to them what God was saying to them through Scripture. And so they had a longing, a desire to hear God, for God to come and to speak to them. And during these 400 years, they had many different rulers. They were ruled by the Persians. They were ruled by the Greeks. They won their own independence. And then they were conquered by the Romans and lived under Roman rule during this time. And that talks a little bit about the political state that Luke is describing here for us. See, Judea was ruled by Rome at this time. Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the Roman Empire, and he was the one who was the ultimate authority in Judea at this time. And Caesar Augustus actually appointed King Herod to rule over this area. King Herod, unlike the kings of old for the people of Israel, was not a descendant of David. He wasn't even a person of Jewish descent. He was an Edomite. He was a a person from a different country nearby. And this is significant for the people of Israel because they longed for something different. See, Herod is an interesting, he's a really a fascinating person if you look at history, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. Uh, On the one hand, you have... uh, You have Herod, not being a Jew, desiring all of the Jews to actually like him. He wanted to be known as a good, benevolent ruler in that day and age. And so because of this, he encouraged the Jewish people to build lots of synagogues. He encouraged the Jewish people to... uh, to cut taxes in the midst of uh, tough times financially. He even provided free grain for them in the midst of famines. And one of the big things that he is known for is his extravagant building projects. In fact, this is why he's known as Herod the Great. He built a city called Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea from scratch. And uh, after he was done completing it, 50,000 people could live there. He built an aqueduct that traveled five miles to bring water for a city of 50,000 people. He did a number of other building projects around the nation of Israel. But perhaps the greatest building project that he worked on was the temple. See, at this time, when Herod comes to power, the temple was a shell of what it once was. It wasn't nearly as beautiful as it was when Solomon was king. And I I want to just show you guys a little bit of an example of, this is a model of what the temple built by Herod looked like. So if you see these walls here, these walls are what is called the, the temple, uh, the, the temple area, the temple courts. And if you see this large building sticking out here in the middle of this area, that is called the holy place. This is the place where the people of Israel considered God himself to live among the people. It was over 150 feet tall and it was built by King Herod. It was a gift from Herod, not to glorify God, but it was a gift from Herod to the Jews as a way to please them, as a way to make them like him more. He desired to be a good, benevolent ruler in their sight. But also, on the other hand, I mentioned Herod was a fascinating figure. Herod also was insane and egotistical. 
He wanted people to love him, and the fact that the Jewish people never accepted him as their true king drove him furious. If there was ever a a threat to his power, he would kill the people who threatened his power. He killed a number of his wives because they were a threat to his power. He killed a number of his sons because they were a threat to his power. In fact, uh, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the entire Roman Empire, said it's better to be a pig owned by Herod than it is to be Herod's own son because of the danger of being slaughtered by Herod. It's because of this oppression by Herod, by the people of Rome at this time, that Israel longed for freedom. I mentioned the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and Malachi speaks a little bit of what it's going to be like when they finally receive freedom, the one day when they would eventually be delivered. Hear these words from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In the midst of a time where the people of Israel were ruled by Herod, they were ruled by Rome, and they longed for freedom from the oppression that they experienced. Passages like Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 gave hope to the people of Israel that God was going to come back someday, that God was going to come and redeem them, release them from the, the slavery that they experienced, the oppression that they experienced. And it's because of passages like this that the people of Israel desperately longed for God to come back. See, in the first century, there was a strong desire for God to come back. And in fact, this desire for a deliverer reached a fever pitch. It was at the highest point of Israel's history that people longed for someone to come and deliver them. They longed for someone to come as the Messiah, as the chosen one who would release them from the rule of the Roman Empire. There were a number of people who actually claimed to be a Messiah, became, or claimed to be deliverers during this time, but all of them failed. All of the prayers of the people focused on this one thing, for deliverance, for God to come and rescue them. And it's in this context that Luke introduces us to a couple, to an insignificant elderly couple named Zechariah. And Elizabeth. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth are on the opposite end of the spectrum of King Herod. They weren't known by anyone. They didn't have power over anyone. They lived in a small village with only a couple hundred people. But every quality that Luke mentions here in verses 5 through 7 about Zechariah and Elizabeth are admirable qualities. Notice what he describes them as. He, he says that Zechariah is a priest. He was set apart for service to God with his entire life. He says that he married Elizabeth, who was the daughter of a priest, which is a very honorable thing to do in that society. Not only that, but he was righteous before God. They were righteous in God's sight. They weren't perfect, but they lived faithfully in God's eyes. And they walked blamelessly in all that they did. Their lives were consistently focused on God. Everything that Luke does to describe them is an admirable character trait. Except for one thing. They were without children. See, in the ancient times, it was a, considered to be a curse 
to be barren, to be without children. And many people actually thought that the reason why people couldn't have kids was because it was their own fault. And so the people who surrounded Zechariah, who surrounded Elizabeth, actually thought of them as deserving of this situation that they found themselves in, that they were being punished by God for their sin. But that's why Luke emphasizes over and over again how righteous they are in God's sight, how admirable they are in God's eyes. And what he's telling us is it's important for us to focus on God's point of view than our own point of view. See, being childless was a disaster economically. They didn't have any sort of government assistance programs. They didn't have retirement funds in those days. And so if you didn't have children, you had no one to take care of you once you got old. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. They have no one to take care of. Everyone thinks that they are being judged and punished by God because of their sin. And Luke is making a simple yet powerful comparison between King Herod and between Zechariah and Elizabeth. See, from the world's eyes, it's no contest. On the one hand, you have Herod, who was a ruler, against Zechariah, who was a nobody. You had Herod, who had many children, versus Zechariah, who had none. And you had Herod, who many people feared. And then you had Zechariah, who many people judged. But things couldn't be more different in God's eyes. See, to God, Zechariah was blameless and Herod was a murderer. Zechariah was righteous and Herod was egotistical. Zechariah was faithful and Herod only cared about himself. It's important for us to recognize the truth that, that Luke is saying here, that God's perspective in our lives is what matters most. See, the hurt of Zechariah and the hurt of Elizabeth that they're experiencing, the fact that they aren't able to have children for so long, it's really indicative of something greater that's happening, something greater that is wrong in the nation of Israel. Something is not right in Israel. The righteous, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, suffer, while the wicked rule, like Herod, Elizabeth's barrenness in her old age is a testament, is a sign that shows the, the dire situation of the people of Israel at this time. Shows the great need for a deliverer to come, for someone to come and rescue them from the situation that they find themselves in. And today we can look around and we can say the same thing in our own society and in our own lives as well. Just look at what's going on in the world. Ferguson, over the last couple weeks, what's been going on there. You look at Ebola over on the other side of the world. People who are alone on the holidays. Something is not wrong in this world. Or something is wrong in this world, rather. We need a deliverer to come. To come and to rescue us from the situations we find ourselves in. We long for someone to come and make everything right. And the people of Israel in Herod's day longed for the same thing. They longed for someone to come, for the Messiah to come, and to make everything right. Let's continue looking at Luke chapter 1 to see what it is that God does to make everything right. Picking up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. 
to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Here we see a little bit of what it was like, what were the, custom, the customs were like in that day for Zechariah. See, in Zechariah's day, there were a number of priests. There were probably over 13,000 different priests uh, who lived. And there weren't that many jobs available for priests in that day because priests only operated in the temple in Jerusalem. And so what they did is, because there were so many priests, they actually split them into 24 different groups. And each of these 24 different groups would work two times a year for an entire week at the temple, serving before God. There were many jobs that needed to be done around the temple. But the biggest honor, the biggest uh, privilege of all that a priest could experience was to offer incense in the holy place. This was actually such an honor that most priests never got the opportunity to go into the holy place, to go into where God himself lived and offer up incense to God. And those who were lucky enough to actually be selected, it was such an honor that they were not allowed to go into the holy place again because they wanted to have many people have the opportunity to serve in this way. It was such a privilege. See, the priests who offered up the incense were chosen by lots. They were casting lots, which is basically the equivalent of rolling dice to see who is going to be selected to go in. And I want you to just take a moment and put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. Zechariah is in his 60s or his 70s. He's waited for decades for the opportunity to offer incense before God. He's served faithfully in the temple since he is 20. If you're Zechariah, you've never been chosen to offer up incense. Maybe you begin to wonder if God really does have it out for you. Maybe you are doing something wrong that God is punishing you for. See, you've seen peers. You've seen those who are much younger than you get this extreme privilege to go into the holy place and offer up incense before God. And yet you have been patiently waiting for decades. You continue to wait, and you continue to wait. But now, at the end of your life, near the end of your life, you are selected to go into the holy place. You are, offer, you are able to offer up incense to God. And after being selected to offer up incense to God, you are in a state of shock. You're shocked because you can't believe that this is actually happening. It's beginning to become so surreal to you. The thoughts of offering incense to God consume your mind. And in the back of your mind, you can hear and you can recognize what's going on in the background. That the other priests who weren't selected like you are preparing the people out in the courtyard to begin praying to God, uh, praying for God to come and deliver his people. You know exactly what that's like because you've done it a number of times in your life before. But now you begin to work your way into the holy place with your two assistants. The two assistants begin to uh, prepare things in the holy place. And after they've got things prepared, they walk out of that location, leaving you alone in the presence of God. As you walked into the holy place, your heart began to race and you were sure that the assistants could hear it beating so hard. And now that you're alone, you take a moment to look around, to drink in the surroundings of being in the place where God lives. As you reach out to offer incense, your hands begin to shake and begin to offer up a prayer to God, asking him to come and deliver his people. 
And yet when you offer up the incense, something impossible happens. And that's described in verse 11. Let's keep reading. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, obedient, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, Zechariah is in shock. He knows exactly how things are supposed to go. It's supposed to be a a short, simple ceremony to go in, offer a prayer, offer up incense, and come back out. For an angel to appear was something that was, frankly, impossible. See, the Jews had a tradition that uh, hundreds of years before Zechariah, angels stopped appearing to people. The angels just stopped appearing to people. And so this was a sign of great significance that God was coming That God was at work among his people. See, the angel Gabriel shares with Zechariah that God has answered or will answer his prayer. And you begin to wonder, well, what exactly is the prayer that Zechariah is getting answered? I think there are two things that are a part of this prayer. First, he prayed for the restoration and salvation of Israel. This is exactly what everyone would pray for during this time. This is what the people out in the courtyard were praying for. This is what uh, was on his mind and on his focus. This is why they went in and offered up incense, asked for God to come and to save Israel, to restore them from what they were experiencing and the oppression they were experiencing. So that's one thing that he prayed for. The second thing is that he prayed for a son. See, Zechariah had prayed undoubtedly uh, countless times before this, asking God for a son, asking God for a child. And up until this point, God had said nothing. And here in the holy place, as as he's in God's presence, he decides to ask him one more time for a son. I think that Zechariah had probably given up hope. He had given up believing that God was going to answer his prayers. And he really just did this more out of habit than anything else, asking for God to come. And it's amazing because not only did God answer both of his prayers, not only did God answer his prayer for the restoration, the salvation of the people of Israel, not only did he answer his prayer for a son, but he answered them in the same person. John is his promised miracle child, but not only that, John is the one who's going to prepare the way for the people of Israel to be delivered from the oppression that they experienced, the deliverance from the oppression of their sin. Not only was God going to bring Zechariah, the son he longed for, but he was also going to bring the deliverance that Zechariah longed for. And he's going to bring that deliverance by preparing the way for that deliverance through Zechariah's miracle son. 
I love the way that Gabriel describes what John, his son, is going to be like. He describes him as someone who is set apart. If you notice here, he mentions uh, that, that uh, John will not have any alcohol, that he will not drink alcohol. And this is a part of what is called a Nazarite vow. This was a, a vow that the people of Israel could take for a temporary time uh, where they would offer themselves up for special service before God. It was just a temporary thing. But there are a couple people in the Old Testament that are actually lifelong Nazarites. You think of Samson and Samuel as two lifelong Nazarites that were part of this vow. And John, just like them, is a lifelong Nazarite, someone who is set apart from birth for the service of God. We also see that John is going to be spirit-filled, that the, the Spirit of God will be with him even before he is born. Before the resurrection of Jesus, before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would only come upon people for temporary amounts of time. They would, he would come upon people as a way to deliver the people of Israel from some great oppression that they felt. But the Spirit of God is upon John even before he is born. And the reason is, is because God has given John the power to complete the ministry that he will have for him. The third thing we see is that John is going to be used in a great way by God. God's spirit is going to live with him for service. And that service is going to be a fruitful ministry. I love the way that Gabriel describes what John is going to be like when he says that he is going to turn the hearts of many children to the Lord their God. He's going to turn the hearts of many children to the Lord their God. See, Israel had lost sight of God in the 400 years that he had been silent. And here, God is going to use John to bring many of them back. And as I was working through this passage this past week, as I got to that verse... I just took a moment and just imagined what it would be like for Zechariah. See, Zechariah is a priest. He's devoted his entire life to serving God in the temple. And then he finds out that he's going to have a son. But not only is he going to have a son, but this miracle child is going to be used by God in great and mighty ways to reach the people of his nation. And I think that this would probably be the best news ever. For Zechariah, he couldn't imagine better news to hear that God was going to use his child to reach those who are around him, to reach those who were far away from God. And in these few short verses, Zechariah is taught clearly, he's taught powerfully the great, awesome, mighty power of God. See, God is able to give a child to the childless. God is able to save those who need saving. And to the people of Israel long for redemption. God is going to bring them that redemption. If you're like the people of Israel, if you long for deliverance from the oppression that you experience, whatever that may be, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because God worked through Zechariah. God worked through John. And God, most importantly, worked through his son Jesus to bring salvation, to bring redemption for us. See, God will bring redemption to his creation one day. God will come again in Jesus. Jesus will return one day to make all things like, uh, will make all things right, and he will answer our prayers for redemption. And this is the good news of Advent. This is the good news of this passage as well. And let's keep reading and see what happens next.
Picking up in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. See, at this point, Zechariah, he's finally able to speak, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, is a question. It's a question of disbelief. He finds the news of the angel too good to be true, and he wonders whether the angel is trustworthy, whether he can trust the angel with the good news that he is hearing. It's, it's almost like Zechariah has been burned too many times in the past, that he's unwilling to put himself out there, unwilling to trust one more time to find out if this is true. And the text here, the, the ESV that I just read, it, it says this as a how. How can I know this is going to happen? But that's not strong enough, and I don't think really many English translations get this strong enough. Uh, Zechariah is really kind of saying, prove it to the angel. He doesn't believe what is happening or what is going to happen. And so he tells the angel to prove it. He's bitter because of the lack of God answering his prayers in the past. And so he asks for God to prove that this is going to happen. He's been unable to believe after decades of God remaining silent. And so he asks God to show him a sign. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you're like Zechariah and you have just given up on praying to God, asking God for an answer because of all of the times that he has said nothing. You don't believe that God is going to come through, that God will answer or even can answer your prayers. And if that's you, the sign of Zechariah here is the sign for you as well. See, if you think that it's impossible, just like Zechariah, if you respond with doubt and skepticism, let John's birth be a reminder. Remember what the angel says to Mary just a few verses later. It says, nothing is impossible with God. And what we see from Zechariah's sign he is made deaf and mute. We see that unbelief is not admirable. Unbelief is not a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a bad, serious thing that we have to address in our, own lives, uh, in our own lives. If you are like Zechariah, and if you lack the faith to believe God that he will answer your prayers, if you lack the faith in God's ability and power to answer those prayers, it's a serious issue. It's a problem in your life. For example, when I look at Zechariah, I see myself. I see my own struggles to believe that God will sometimes answer my prayers. If I've been praying them for a long time, consistently asking God to answer my prayer. It is wrong not to believe God. It's wrong not to trust that he will answer prayers, that he will keep his promises to you. And if that's you, if that's you and you're kind of like me in this situation, I want to just share with you a verse. It's probably the, one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture. And that's found in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And it's this, I believe, help my unbelief. See, a lot of times we have a tendency to think that God can answer our prayers theoretically. We can, we can think of it in our minds, but it doesn't really sink into our hearts. And if that's you, 
Pray that prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Begin believing that God is able to do good thing, big things. Begin believing that God wants to do big things. And believe, begin believing that God wants to use you to do big things for his kingdom. See, this is the reason why Zechariah walks out of the temple mute. This is the reason why Zechariah is unable to speak and unable to hear in this point. And let's keep reading to see what happens here. Picking up in verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. See, when he rejoins the crowd, it's restless. They expected Zechariah to go in, offer up his incense, and to come back out. It's a short, simple ceremony. And the fact that he hasn't come out actually has the people a little nervous. They know that this man doesn't have a child. They think that this man is actually cursed by God. It's a dangerous thing to go into the presence of God. And maybe this guy has been killed by God as a sign of his punishment upon them. And yet when they see him, as he comes out, something significant happens. Because Zechariah's inability to speak, inability to hear, was not just a sign to Zechariah that this was going to happen. It was a sign to the people out in the courtyard that God had returned. That God was ready to speak to his people. That God was still active. That God was still at work among them. This was a good, wonderful sign for people who longed for God to come and deliver them from the oppression that they experienced. It was, a, it was a form of assurance that God was present, that God was among them, and that God was working in a way that Israel could never imagine. Let's close our passage to see again how God keeps his promises. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Luke closes this passage by assuring the people who are reading it that God kept his promise, that God fulfilled what he said he was going to do. Elizabeth and Zechariah are pregnant with a child that God has done the impossible and has brought vindication, especially to Elizabeth. See, Elizabeth says here that God took away her reproach. It's undoubtable that she experienced slander at the, at the people who were around her. They would talk down about her because she was unable to provide a child for her husband. And yet, here in her old age, she is given that great privilege because of God's faithfulness. Because God is one who keeps his promises for the people of Israel and for us today. Notice how she responds. She responds in praise. And that's a, such an appropriate way for us to respond today as well. See, just like God did with Zechariah, just like God did with Elizabeth, just like what he did with the nation of Israel, God keeps his promises to us today as well. God will promise to do what he said he will do. And God will fulfill those promises. 
Maybe you're like Zechariah. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you've lost the belief that God will answer his prayers, that God will keep his promises. This passage tells us differently. That God keeps his promises. Now, does that mean that if you pray hard enough, that you pray long enough, that God will automatically answer your prayers? No. I have a friend of mine right now who's going through an impossibly hard time. Actually, very similar to what Zechariah and Elizabeth are going through. And uh, in response to this time, his initial way of thinking is saying, maybe I just need to pray more. Maybe I just need to, to memorize more scripture, to spend more time in prayer and to fast. And, and once I'm closer to God, then he'll answer my prayer. But that's a dangerous thing to go down. That's a dangerous path to go down because then it's focusing on what I'm doing to get God to do what I want him to do. God will keep his promises. God will do what he has planned to do. Let's trust him for that. There isn't a magic formula for God to answer our prayers. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to pray because God can use our prayers to change those who are around us, to change us. And God will answer our prayers. God is at work in our lives. God can use our prayers to bring people to faith. If you look in your bulletin, you'll find a little card like this. And one of the things we want to do this Advent season is to spend time praying for big prayers, for miracles to take place. If you remember a few weeks ago, was, as we were going through Jonah, I said to, to think of a one person who you think is beyond saving, beyond the reach of God. What we're going to do today is we're going to do something similar. We're going to write down the names of three people. And if you look here, there are three different categories. Roof, which would be family members or extended family. Uh, relationships, those who you come into contact frequently, or rather relationships being friends, and then routine, uh, those who you frequently come into contact with. And you don't have to name one for each of those, but it would be nice if you could name three people. And what we want you to do is to spend time this Advent season praying for them, praying for God to be at work in their life, for God to come and to answer your prayers, just like he did answer Zechariah's prayer. See, God has already promised And we know that God will bring redemption. And it is our privilege to be able to pray for that same redemption for those who are around us. And if if you see, you can fold it and you can put this as like a a table tent card on your uh, kitchen table. So that way you can remember to pray for those people. And in addition to just praying for them, we would love for you to invite them to a service here at Crosswinds Church. It can be for our Christmas Eve service coming up soon. It can be for a Sunday service. It, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we would just like you to invite them. And, and they, may say, they might say no. And that's okay. We're not responsible for their response. But God does want us to be faithful to his calling. And part of that is to pray for those who are around us. To pray for God to be at work in their lives. Just as he was thousands of years ago in the life of Zechariah. John coming. Friends, God keeps his promises. We can trust that God is able to and will bring redemption. 
in our lives and the lives of those who are around us because God is faithful. Let's remember that. Let's remember that God is able to keep his promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a good God, a God who is trustworthy, a God who wants to answer prayer, a God who is at work in our lives. And God, we ask that you would be pleased to use us for your glory, that you would be pleased to use us to pray for those who don't know you, to speak truth to those who don't know you. God, give us the courage to invite those who are far from you. And Lord, give us the discipline as well as the memory to remember to pray for them in this Advent season. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.